Just a quick housekeeping note before we get started. If your child picked up a bulletin, and I hope they did, a child's bulletin. If they didn't, they're in the foyer. And they got a set of crayons. Would you please make sure that you throw those wrappers away in the trash and not the seat back? So I would love for the cleaning ladies to not hate me, um, if at all possible. So those crayons are theirs to keep if they want them. If you're like we used to be and you've got enough crayons rolling around in the floorboard of your car and the cup holders, then just put them back in the basket where you got them and I will take care of them. So. But they're theirs to keep. I hope they enjoy them. I'm excited to see some of the artwork and see who can get through the, uh, the word search puzzle. I made it as hard as I could, so we'll see. Hopefully it keeps you occupied. All right, well, good morning and happy Reformation Day early. Yeah, that's a cause, that's a cause to celebrate. What kind of Protestants are you guys? This is already off to a bad start. Okay, yeah, so Tuesday is the 506th anniversary of the event that kicked off the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther nailed his disputation on the sale of indulgences, or more commonly as we know it, the 95 Theses, to the door, the cathedral door of Wittenberg. And that sparked what we call the Protestant Reformation. So if you're new here or if you're visiting, we're going to do something that is atypical for us today. So as elders and pastors and teachers, shepherds, uh, we believe that our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the primary way that we do that is that we open up the scriptures and we feed from the meat of God's word. But I also think that there is times where it's good to look backwards. And so God told the Israelites repeatedly, remember, remember, remember. And there's a reason that he did that. So that they wouldn't be enticed by the gods of this world, of, the, of Canaan, what they were going into. And so there's times where it's good to remember. And so that's what we're going to do today. There's not going to be, by lion and lamb standards, there's not going to be a ton of Bible teaching. We're going to do some history. We're going to look back at pre-Reformation history. We're going to look at the events of the Reformation, what came out of that, what are the effects of that. And then we're going to look at some, uh, some pretty startling, they were to me anyway, some statistics about how are we doing as heirs of the Reformation. If you were in Sunday school, you know, we talked about beliefs, right? Who Christ is. And we're going to get to the survey. I don't want to prejudge anybody, but the, the results are pretty startling. So that's where, that's where we're going this morning. And my hope is that it's going to be profitable for us. I will say this was maybe one of the most fun messages to study for. Uh, it was just fascinating. And Steve is a history uh, buff, so he can back me up on that. So the scriptures talk about how Christ came in the fullness of time. And that not only means that it was according to God's plan, so Jesus didn't appear one moment prior to God wanting him to, but it also means that God had superintended history. And so the conditions were ripe for the spread of the gospel. So you had you had the Roman Empire, uh, as brutal as they were, they enforced a sort of peace on most of the known world. You had roads, you had a mail system, you had a common language, Koine Greek. 
And so when the events that happened in this little backwater Israel um, and the Messiah had come, the conditions were ripe for it to spread all over the world because you had roads, you had safe, relatively safe travel, and you had a common language for people. Well, you see the same kind of thing in the Reformation. So there were lots of political things going on. The printing press had been invented 66 years before Martin Luther uh, posted the theses to the door. So they were, his ideas were able to spread. You had uh, all kinds of things going on in Europe, politically, with the church that we're gonna talk about. And so on that faithful day in October, you could see, you can, if you look back on it, you can see divine providence lining things up like dominoes until the time was right and the final dominoes in place and God kicks it off and boom, you get the Reformation. So it was fascinating. Um, I would actually love to do a Sunday school study. I'm springing that on the teachers right now. but So maybe we'll do that. Okay, most Protestants know that on October 31st, 1517, as I said, Martin Luther nailed a document, the actual title of which is the Disputation on the Power of Indulgences. We call it the 95 Theses. And he nailed that to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany. What you may not know, uh, okay, just go to the next one, please. Okay, I was hoping that was going to work. It worked in practice. That's okay. What you may not know is that the seeds that bore fruit in Luther's time were actually sown in England and Czechoslovakia a couple hundred years earlier. So this gentleman is John Wycliffe, and John Wycliffe lived in England. He was an Oxford-trained theologian. So a quick, a quick uh, bunny trail. Did you know that Oxford has been around since 10, the 10 hundreds? There's been some sort of teaching thing for 2,000 years at Oxford. So he was a Roman Catholic priest. He was a theologian. And he, would, he was the, often called the morning star of the Reformation because he had some of the same criticisms that Luther did of the Catholic Church. Well, Wycliffe didn't wake up one morning and decide, oh, I'm going to put myself at odds with the Catholic Church, and I'm going to start talking about papal abuses. And so we want to look, we want to step back and look at what was going on at the time in the church. And so you're going to have to follow me closely. I'm going to, I'm going to try to go slow because it's, it's really confusing. So, in 1054, the Eastern Orthodox Church splits from the Roman Catholic Church. And so what you have is you have the Eastern Orthodox Church in Constantinople, and you have the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. Well, in 1309 for reasons that are still unknown, the Pope moves from Rome to Avignon, France. And from 1309 to 1377, the papacy was not in Rome as it is now, it was in Avignon, France. So in 1377, Gregory XI is elected Pope, and for reasons unknown, he decides he's moving back to Rome. He's leaving Avignon, maybe the weather was not great, he wanted to go to Rome. So he moves to Rome. Well, that infuriated the French, the French cardinals. And so Gregory dies, and his successor is elected, Pope Urban VI. Okay, so Pope Urban VI is in Rome, and a group of cardinals in Avignon decide, well, Urban's illegitimate because we didn't vote for him, so his election doesn't count. So they elected their own guy, 
Clement VII. So now you've got two popes. You've got one in Avignon, France. You've got one in Rome. And both these guys are saying, I'm the heir to Peter. I hold the keys to the church. They're denouncing each other. And it was, it was a mess. Okay, in 1409, so Urban's dead, Clement's dead. You still, then you've got rival popes that are still in both these places. And a group of cardinals in Pisa, Italy, uh, said, hold my beer. And they elected their own guy. Okay, so now you've got three popes. You've got one in Rome, you've got one in Avignon, and you've got one in Pisa. And you had that situation for about 10 years. All right? So these guys are denouncing each other. They're, I'm the pope. No, you're the pope. No, I'm the pope. And, and it, was, it was a hot mess. Okay? So that is, that's the, the, where Wycliffe is living. So you guys still with me? Okay, okay, because I'm telling you, it's a mess. So in 1414, the Pisa Pope, all right, John, John the 23rd, he calls a council in Constance, Germany, the Council of Constance, okay, and, it, and that met from 1414 to 1418. Well, at that council, John resigns. He just quits being Pope. He gets the Rome Pope to renounce his claim. <laughs> and this is funny, they actually excommunicate the French guy. So they got together, John says, I quit. The guy in Rome says, I'm gonna give up. And they excommunicate the French Pope and they reelect Pope Martin V. And that heals the schism, okay? Or so they thought. Martin moves back to Rome, consolidates rule, and that's where the papacy has been ever since, okay? So here you've got John Wycliffe, who is a trained theologian, and he sees this going on. He sees, at one point, you had three rival popes all issuing edicts, right? Catholic doctrine is that when the pope says something, he speaks ex cathedra, so it's authoritative. And what's funny is the Catholic Church has never disavowed any of these three popes, right? Even though they excommunicated the French guy, he's still listed on the Pope list, right? And so what he said would have been authoritative. And then that was actually one of Luther's complaints. You know, when he said popes and councils can't be trusted because at one time there were three contradictory popes going on. And these guys are issuing edicts for the church. So this is Wycliffe's complaint. And Wycliffe, he says, it's not popes or councils that is the supreme authority. It's scripture. Scripture is the supreme authority. He's going to talk about abuses of papal authority. He's going to talk about abuses of how cardinals were selected. He translated the Bible into Middle English because just like Luther, he thought the people should have the opportunity to read the Bible for themselves. So, in fact, there's a Bible organiza translation organization that is named after John Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible Translators. They exist to this day. And that's their mission, is to get the Bible into everybody's language. So, w naturally, Wycliffe's criticisms of the church angered, uh, angered the papacy, all three of them, actually. And so he was in trouble from all directions. But he had powerful friends, one of whom was the son of King Edward III. And so they were able to protect him 
from being declared a heretic and being excommunicated. He did lose his teaching job at Oxford, but during his lifetime, he was able to write, he was able to criticize the Catholic Church, and he was never branded a heretic. However, in 1415, at the Council of Constance, and we're going to come back to this council because it figures in church history, he was declared a heretic. So he's dead, right? He died in 1384. In 1415, at the Council of Constance, he was declared a heretic. It was decreed that all his works should be burned and that his body be exhumed and burned. And they did that in 1428. They went to the church in Lutterworth where he had pastored. They dug him up, they burned him, and they threw his ashes in the river Swift. So they thought they had dodged a bullet. However, waiting in the wings was Jan Hus. And Jan Hus was a Roman Catholic priest in Czechoslovakia. And he had discovered Wycliffe's writings in 1401. And he sees the same thing going on because the, the schism was happening during his lifetime. So he starts writing about things going on in the Catholic Church. He starts writing about abuses. Well, unfortunately for Huss, uh, he didn't have powerful friends to protect him. And in 1414, he was invited to the Council of Constance to talk about what he thought was the problem of the papacy. And what actually happened was he was hauled before a kangaroo court, he was tried, he was excommunicated, and he was declared a heretic. And in July, on July 6, 1415, they dressed him up in priestly robes. They defrocked him, which means they took away his priestly authority, said you're no longer a priest, and they burned him. They burned him at the stake. So the church thinks they're okay. They've gotten rid of, they've gotten rid of Wycliffe. They've gotten rid of Huss, and they think everything is good. We've, we've taken care of our heretic problem. Little did they know that about 100 years later, Martin Luther was going to come on the scene. And Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, was born in Eisleben, Germany. That's a shot of Eisleben. It did not look like that when Luther lived there. There were no red tile roofs, probably thatch roofs at that point. But beautiful, sunny day in Germany, a rare sunny day in Germany. And Luther was born to Hans and Marguerite. And Hans was a fairly successful copper smelter, but he wanted something better for his son. He wanted his son to go to university and to be a lawyer. And so in 1501, that's just another shot of Eisleben, that's a Luther statue there. In 1501, Luther enrolls at the University of Erfurt and he studies logic, grammar, rhetoric, and metaphysics. All things. So this is part of, again, God lining up the domino, dominoes, right? So Luther studies the exact things that are going to help him articulate the Reformation ideals. His upbringing contributed. His, he had a very German upbringing, so he was determined, he was staunch, all those things, you just see God lining things up for later on. So it looked like Luther was going to become a lawyer, as his father wanted. Well, all that changed in 1505, when Luther is caught outside in a violent thunderstorm, and he feared for his life. He thought he was going to die. And so he cries out, save me, Saint Anne. I don't know who that is. 
and I'll become a monk. And, of course, we know Luther did survive, and he fulfilled his vow. He became an Augustinian monk. So Luther's, Luther's a monk, he's an Augustinian monk, and he's also teaching in Wittenberg. This is the town hall in Wittenberg, as it is a few years ago. And Luther is so racked by guilt and consumed by his sin, he knows that God is completely holy and he is not. And so Luther, he would, he would confess, his, professor, his teacher and his confessor at this time was Johann von Staupitz. And it's said that one time Luther confessed for six hours straight to von Staupitz in an attempt to remember everything wrong he had done and so that he could be clear with God. So Luther, was just, he was consumed, and von Staupitz would tell him, because von Staupitz really cared for him. There's letters that they were, von Staupitz was affectionate. And he would say, Luther, Christ died for you. Lean into God's love. Love God. And Luther replied at one point, love God, I hate him. I hate God. Because Luther could only see Christ as the judge. Luther knew. He knew what he was. So von Staupitz, I don't know if he was tired of listening to Luther for six hours straight or what, but at some point, von Staupitz was, a Bible, was the Bible teacher at Wittenberg College. He resigns his position, and he appoints Luther in his place. And so for the first time, instead of studying the church fathers and church writings, Luther has to study scripture. And he's studying Romans and Galatians, and he happens upon Romans 1.17. I've included 16 here for context. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the scales fell off Luther's eyes. And he says, it is as if the gates of paradise had opened and I walked through. Luther had recovered the gospel. He knew. This was the answer that he had been searching for. I, Luther knew, I'm not righteous. And I'm going to stand before holy God. There's no amount of penance. There's no amount of confession. There's no amount of works I can do. And I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? And this was the answer, that it's not what Luther could have done. It's what Christ had already done. All Luther had to do was have faith in that. So this was it. This was the answer for Luther, and it's the answer for you and me. It's not what we do. It's, not, it's what's been done for us. And because of that, you and I are justified. We're declared righteous. Right? The because Christ sent the godly to die for the ungodly. And so all we have to do is believe. So that was huge. Okay, so Luther, oops, wait, let me go back, sorry. I got ahead of myself. So Luther has discovered the doctrine of the justification by faith alone. And he starts writing about that. And he starts talking about that. And he's echoing, echoing, some of the same criticisms that Wycliffe and Huss had about the church because he knows church history from studying it. 
And so from his pulpit in Wittenberg, he starts calling these things out and writing about them. And what really sent Luther, Luther excuse me, over the edge and caused him to post his theses was the selling of indulgences. Not only the selling of them, but actually the actual practice of them. So I don't want to I don't want to spend a ton of time on indulgences because if you thought the schism was confusing, indulgences is nothing compared to that. But I do want to give you kind of an idea of what Luther was objecting to. So it is still Catholic doctrine to this day that you could get an indulgence that has never been repudiated. At the Council of Trent, they said you can't sell them, but you can still get one. So what is an indulgence? So Catholics believe, and this is from doctrine, so I'm just going to read it, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. An indulgence is a means of remission of the temporal punishment for sins, which have already been forgiven, but are due the Christian in this life and or in purgatory. So what that means is you've been forgiven because of what Christ has done. So you sin. Any, any former Catholics in here besides me? Yeah, okay. So maybe you guys will remember. You know, I can actually remember the little ritual thing you say when you go to confession. I was surprised. After so many years, I could still rattle that thing off. So you go to, you commit whatever sin, okay? You stole candy, you lied to your mom, you whatever. It doesn't matter. You go to the priest, uh, you get in the little booth, you say, forgive me, Father, it's been X days since my last confession. And he's going to say, I absolve you of your sins. Go do seven Hail Marys and three Our Fathers or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Okay? So you've been forgiven. The priest has absolved you of your sin because of what Christ did. But there's still a stain of original sin attached to you. And so you've got to pay for that. You've got to pay for that original sin. So that's either suffering in this life or if you're really bad, you've got to do some time in purgatory. Okay? The time in purgatory could be be a lot of time. You could spend 10,000 years in purgatory if you're really, really bad. So an indulgence removes that stain and pays for the time that you would have had to spend in purgatory or the time that you would have had in suffering. So think of it this way. And if somebody's offended by this, my apologies. So I'm not worried about being sacrilegious because I'm not a Catholic anymore. But So think of it this way. So <laughs> Yeah, so it's a giant, think of it as a giant ATM, all right? This ATM is filled with the merit of Christ. So the merit of Christ goes into the ATM. The merit of the Virgin Mary goes into the ATM. The merit of the Catholic saints goes into the ATM. The merit of good works goes into the ATM. And this ATM is said to be infinite because it includes Christ's merit. So there's no limit to how much you can withdraw from this ATM, or the Pope can withdraw. You and I can't withdraw anything. Well, he can't either, but. <laughs> so when you're granted an indulgence, the Pope withdraws from the treasury of merit, and he applies that to your account. So you're free and clear. 
whatever suffering you would have had to have done is paid for out of the merit, treasury of merit. Now, they were selling these. This gentleman is Johann Tetzel. You've probably heard that name before. And Tetzel was a pretty aggressive salesman. And the reason they were selling indulgences was because Pope Leo X, who was the pope during Luther's time, he wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is a fabulous building, by the way. But he wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica, and he didn't have enough money. He couldn't tax the, the Italians enough for it. He couldn't tax the other churches. So he had to raise money somehow when they were selling indulgences. Now, Tetzel is infamously quoted as saying, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. So the way this would work is Tetzel would roll into some town in Germany, and he'd say, you know, for 10 ducats, I'll, I'll, knock a, I'll give you an indulgence, and I'll knock 100 years off your serv- sentence in purgatory. For 1,000 ducats, I'll spring grandma, who's been languishing in, in purgatory for hundreds of years, maybe, and she gets to go right to heaven. And so can you imagine poor people who are superstitious in a lot of ways, they fear hell like Luther did, and this was an easy sell. He was raking in lots and lots of money. So Luther was not only incensed by the unbiblicalness of this, but he was incensed by the injustice of it. Because he, was, he saw it for what it was. It was a grift. And Tetzel was preying on people's fears and their superstition and their fear of hell to get them to cough over money. And so Luther questioned. So Luther, at one point, we're going to talk about Cardinal Cayetan in a minute. Luther questioned at one point, if the Pope has an unlimited supply of merit and could empty purgatory of everybody that's in it right now, why has no Pope ever done so? And why, Leo, why don't you do it? You can imagine how that went over, right? And so Luther, Luther's not having it. So, that brings us to the cathedral door in Wittenberg. Now, Wittenberg was a university town, and so if you wanted to debate an idea, if you wanted to debate some controversial topic or subject, you would nail a notice to the, to the cathedral door. Think of it as the Twitter of the 1500s without all the trolls, right? And so... That's what happened. Somebody would see it and they say, oh, you know, we're going to have a we're going to have a debate about this topic. So Luther nailed the 95 theses to the to the door because he wanted to have a discussion. His initial desire was not to to break the church. It was to reform the church. Later, that proved to be impossible. He also sent a copy to the Bishop of Mainz just to make sure that they got it. The Bishop of Mainz read it, realized, uh oh. We have a problem, forwarded that on to Rome. It didn't get to Rome until like February. And we're going to talk about Leo's response here in a minute. But something had happened 60 years earlier to this event. The printing press had been invented. Right? And again, that's one of those dominoes you see in history. The printing press had been invented. There were more than one of them around. And so somebody grabbed that off of the door, and they started making copies of it. So by the time Leo gets a hold of it in February, 
realizes there's an issue, this thing is all over Germany. And they've got a mess on their hands. Okay, so it's not just Luther that is starting to say some of these things. You've got other people saying some of these things as well. So Leo dispatches Cardinal Thomas Cayetan. Oh, got ahead of myself again. Cardinal, Kay- Cardinal Thomas Cayetan, who was the papal legate in Augsburg, and he sends him in the hopes that he's going to be able to talk to Luther. He's going to be able to reason with Luther. So Cayetan was a great theologian. He was a master of rhetoric, just like Luther was. And he thought, okay, if anybody's going to be able to talk this guy back into the flock, it's going to be Cayetan. And so from 14, uh, 15, excuse me, 1518 to 1519-ish, they would have these back and forth discussions. Sometimes they were in person. And Cayetan just totally underestimated Luther. Um, They would just get into these shouting arguments. And finally, Cayetan realizes, I'm not going to be able to reason with this guy. So he throws Luther out, says, don't ever appear in my presence again. And he starts, Cayetan starts writing uh, things that are against what Luther is saying. So Luther is still in Wittenberg. He's still writing about the things he's had. And finally, Leo had had enough. Leo had just reached the end of his patience. So he issued a papal bull, which is a, it's a proclamation, a papal proclamation. And the first line of it in Latin is exurge domine, arise, O God. Arise, O God. You just, you just hear Leo's incensed, and he's got the power of the papacy behind him, and he's going to crush this monk. And so this is what he says. He called on God to arise and act against the foxes and wild boar, meaning Luther, who are destroying the vineyard of the Lord, who had bestowed jurisdiction over it to Peter and his successors. So the bull listed 41 statements that Luther had made that the church considered heretical. And it gave him 60 days to recant and the papal bull also ordered that all Luther's works would be burned. And so initially, Luther doesn't do anything. He just continues teaching classes and going on about his business. And Well, about 60 days later, he gives Leo his answer. So he starts a bonfire with church canon law in the square of Wittenberg. And you see that picture there. So he's, he's burning church law and he throws the papal bull onto it. And so Luther was never one for subtlety. And so that's, that's his answer to Leo. Okay? So this gets back to Leo. And in 1521, Luther is officially excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And he is summoned to appear before Emperor Charles V, Cardinal Cayetan, other clergy of the Catholic Church, and some of the German princes at the Diet of Worms, which you see here. Johann Eck was the, inquis- was the inquisitor of the Diet, and he questioned Luther. He said, will you recant? If you've seen the movie, you've seen that. And so Luther doesn't want to necessarily, because Luther had been under the protection of Frederick uh, III, so he is trying to not risk a direct confrontation with Charles for, for Frederick's sake. And so he kind of equivocates. He said, well, some of my writings, even the church 
accepts. And finally, Eck just presses him for a clear answer. Do you recant? And Luther issues his famous statement. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me, amen. Right? And so Luther, that was his answer. I'm, I can't recant because I'm captive to scripture. I'm captive to the word of God, which tells me that I'm justified by Christ alone. I'm captive by the word of God that says, that says Christ is the mediator between God and man, not the Catholic church, not the priests. And so Luther, he wasn't gonna recant. So Luther had been given safe passage by Frederick, and to Charles's credit, Charles had been pressured to rescind that and to arrest Luther, and he refused to do it. But Frederick was fear, feared that uh, something would happen as Luther was going back to Wittenberg. And so he kidnapped him, and he took him to the Wartburg Castle, which you see here. And so uh, Frederick's concerns were vindicated because in May of that year, Luther was declared a heretic, he was declared an outlaw, and uh, he was supposed to be arrested. Well, in the meantime, he is safely in the Barberg Castle and can't be touched. He translated the scriptures into German while he was there. He wrote some hymns, did some other things. Things kind of quiet down. He returned to Wittenberg. That's a copy of the Luther Bible. If you look really closely, you can see like the third line down. M-A-R-T, Luth, and you kind of see. That's not a great shot. He returns to Wittenberg, and he marries escaped nun Katarina von Bora. And they live together in Wittenberg until his death in 1546. So in 1545, the Catholic Church convened the Council of Trent, that was kind of, and that started the Counter-Reformation. And they actually did make some reforms they made some small attempts to move towards the reformers, so they outlawed the sale of indulgences. And they were hoping that that would be enough to get the, to get the rebels back into the camp. Well, the genie was out of the bottle at that point. You had, you had Calvin and Beza in Switzerland by now. They're pumping out reform doctrine by the cartload. Uh, you're not going to get that back in. It would spread to the Dutch, the Dutch Reformed Church, what happened soon after that, you have Henry VIII who decided he was going to be the head of the English church. And so there was just no going back from that point. Okay, so that's the history, guys. Again, that was the 30,000 view of history. There was tons of stuff going on. And it's confusing. You have to back and forth. But it was fascinating. Now, as Protestants, we're conditioned. And let me qualify what I'm going to say. We're conditioned to say that the Reformation was an unmitigated success. And if you look at it on a scale, the recovery of the gospel alone was worth all the problems that were caused. So, you know, the recovery of the gospel, the fact that you and I don't need bulls or popes or priests to be right with God, right? 
We can be right right now by putting our faith in Christ. That alone was worth all the problems that were caused by the Reformation. But the Reformation, and, it, and the Reformation, it, so Bible translations happened after that. Literacy increased after that. There were advancements in culture, art, politics. Because of the Reformation, you could make a case that America would not exist in its present form if the Reformation had not come to Britain and changed things. And so, absolutely, unless you're a Roman Catholic, on balance, the Reformation was a good thing. I mean, I don't, I don't want to minimize that at all. However, there have been, and there were, some downsides to the Reformation, to the split from Rome. And one of the ones that's subtle I think, is that it introduced into our Protestant DNA a distrust of authority, and particularly church authority. So as Protestants, we have it, we have it bad in a couple ways. So we're Protestants, one, we're Midwesterners, two. And so we're naturally a little independent. And I'm not saying anything you guys don't know, because we all know that about ourselves. But it... It introduced into our DNA in, in ways that I don't even think we're aware of most of the time, this distrust of authority. So we say the priesthood of all believers, and I affirm that. I affirm that everybody's a priest. We also don't like being told how to live our lives or what to do, right? Anybody, anybody love being told what to do or how to, how to live your life? I don't. Keith does. He, he. Good answer with your wife sitting right there. <laughs> Husbands, that's how it's done. You guys missed an opportunity there. I can't do anything for you now. It's too late. Right? So, so we have this independent streak that makes us real resistant to authority, resistant to being told what to do and how to live. We all have it. It's, it's in our DNA. There's nothing we can do about it. So this also makes us have, I think, it makes us have looser connections with the global church because we don't often look at ourselves as part of the whole. So if you look in the, if you look in the epistles, when Paul writes, he writes to the church of Ephesus. He writes to the church in Philippi. He writes to the church of the Galatians, to the church in Rome. And those churches would meet in different places. Maybe they met in homes. Sometimes they met in larger venues, the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. The church in Jerusalem met in the Portico of Solomon. There's maybe five, 7,000 people. And so they, were, they would meet in smaller venues, but they all considered themselves part of the church of Ephesus, part of the church of Philippi. And I think because we're so independent-minded, we don't necessarily tend to think that way. So, listen, I'm not advocating that we consolidate all the churches in Topeka, under one, but the reality is there's one church in Topeka, the Church of Jesus Christ in Topeka. If Paul were going to write to us, that's how he would write. Now, it meets in different places. It has different elders, which wouldn't have in the first century, but there's only one church, and so we don't tend to think that way, and I think that has made us weaker because we don't cooperate maybe times when we could. It's also made us 
a little less connected with each other. And I'm saying, let me, let me say, I think we do this better than most churches, so pat, pat ourselves on the back. I think the American church generally, we don't connect well with each other. So if you look at what the church is, so remember I talked about God lining up the dominoes. Well, I can look at our story of how we got to lion and lamb, and I can see dominoes. So I'm not here because I chose to be here, although I think I am. I'm not here because I like you, which I do. I do like you. I'm not here because we have the same interests, although we do have a lot of the same interests. I'm here because Christ put me here, and Christ put you here. And you and I have an obligation both to each other and for each other. So I'm res as an elder, I'm responsible for you. I'm going to give an account for you at one point when I stand before Christ. I'm responsible to you, so I'm responsible for the way I live my life. Somebody asked me, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an elder at Lion and Lamb, and I'm out living crazy. That reflects, one, on the church of Jesus Christ, but it reflects on you. I have a responsibility to you. There's 59 one another passages, passages in the scriptures. You know, care for one another, love for one another, pray for one another. And so, in a sense, we are bound to each other in a way I don't... And again, I'm saying I think we do that better here than most churches, but we're bound to each other. So it's not that, that I get to choose and I get to pick and choose when I'm going to go, when I'm going to come. Uh, it should take something for me to break, break fellowship. And I should live in a way that I understand the obligation that I have to you and that you have to me. Okay? And I don't think the American church that we always do that. All right, and I also think that because we have this Protestant independent streak and we don't like being told what to do or, or how to live, that we can kind of veer off into crazy theology. So you can listen to Mike or Kent or me and you can decide, well, I'm just going to interpret for myself. And you should, you should study the scripture. You absolutely should. You should be like the Bereans. You should look to see if these things are so. But if you look and you see these things are so, you look that we're telling the truth, and then you decide, well, I don't like that. I'm going to go my own way. That's the independent part I'm talking about. And so I want to wind down with this. Uh, you guys have been very patient. So Remember I talked about how are we doing as heirs of the Reformation? How are we doing for those things that, that Wycliffe and Luther and Huss fought and died for? And the answer is not great. Not great. So every year, two years, biennially, biennially, every two years, never mind, I can't say that. So every two years, Ligonier Ministries puts out a survey. And you can go and you can take this survey yourself. They do one for the general public, and they do one for people who identify as evangelicals. This is their definition of who counts as an evangelical. So if you look at that, if you said these things applied to you, and that's all I knew about you, I didn't know how you live your life or anything else, I would call you a brother or sister in Christ. I would say you're a Christian. I'd give you the right hand of fellowship. So 
With that in mind, this is the definition of evangelicals. This is what evangelicals believe. Okay, almost three out of four. Okay, now let me back up before you guys get scandalized. So you got to take survey results with a grain of salt because people lie even if they say they're evangelicals for whatever reason. Maybe they don't like the tone of the person answer, asking the questions or they're not going to give the correct answer. If even half of these numbers are correct, there's a problem. 73% agree with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. We talked about that in Sunday school. <laughs> I love Tom's reaction. Yeah. 73%, the greatest being created by God. More than half, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Those three religions are diametrically opposed to each other. More than half, 56% agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Hebrews 10, 25, I would refer you to that. More than half believe the Holy Spirit is a force but is not a personal being. More than half agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Romans 3. And this is what was really astounding. Almost half, 44%, say Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. He's a great teacher, but he's not God. Okay? He explicitly made statements. So what, you, what, you really, what this really tells me is people don't read their scriptures. People don't read the Bible. Because even a cursory reading of the scriptures, you could not answer some of these questions the way that you do. So we look at those, and there's a tendency to despair because you think, man, how far have we come from, from Luther fighting and defending the faith? To where we are now, where we're 73% believe that Jesus was the first created person. How do, how do we get here? Okay, and it's easy to despair. Listen, those numbers are not a cause for despair, those survey results are not a cause for despair. Clearly, something has happened, but those are an opportunity. That's an opportunity to get out for those of us who believe that. Christ is eternal. He is one with the Father. For those who believe there is no name given under heaven by which men must be saved, that's an opportunity for, for us to get out and to spread that good news, to be like Luther, to talk about these things, talk about them as we're sitting down, as we're going along the way. That's an opportunity. It's not a cause for despair. So I hope that we'll do that. So it's not, it's not that the Reformation has completely failed, that we've given up. It's, you know, there's always a remnant, right? You look at Israel, there's always a remnant. And sometimes God uses that, sometimes God uses that remnant to bring revival. I don't know if God will or not, you know. I was talking to Steve earlier, and you think, oh, this is it. 
things going on in Israel. This is it. You know, well, every generation of Christians has thought that. Since, since Christ went back to heaven, every generation has thought, this is it. Things can't get much worse. And then they do. All right, they get better. <laughs> That's a happy thought to, to end on. Right. But this is an opportunity, okay? Yes, things are not as we would wish them to be, but things are not as bad as they could be. And that's by the grace of God. Listen, things could be a lot worse than they are. Things could be a lot worse than they are. It is by the grace of God that we still have an opportunity, that we still have freedom, at least here in America, that we still can share the good news. And so we should. So you guys have been very patient. If you would stand. Yep. Stretch if you need to, quietly, please. And let's recite... Paul's admonition to, to Timothy. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in